The day was January 25th. The year was 1959. The place was the church of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. The occasion was the closing of the octave of prayer for Christian unity, and presiding was Pope John XXIII, who had been Pope for only a few months. At that gathering, he announced to the assembled clergy that he, was, he had the intention of convening an ecumenical council. The previous council, the one just before, Vatican I, had been held in 1869 and 1870, 90 years earlier. The one before that, the Council of Trent, was held between 1545 and 1563 and presided by five different popes 400 years ago. In Rome, when the news of Pope John's express intention was known, the result was surprise and confusion. Who needed a council? Especially a council of reform and renewal. Didn't everybody know that the Catholic Church was on a roll? Everything was great? The seminaries were full, the convents were full, the churches were full? Why did we need a council? In fact, as Pope John sensed, Catholicism had become an antiquated war museum. The Council of Trent back in 1545 had fought the Reformation begun by Martin Luther, John Calvin and others. It dug its heels in and reaffirmed its sole authority in matters of dogma, morals and church discipline. The Counter-Reformation was a success. The heretics were simply kicked out of the church. The Council of Vatican I, presided by Pope Pius IX, rebelled against the political, social, and cultural revolutions of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Pope Pius IX was especially angry that he had lost control of the Papal States as Italy became a country again for the first time since the 5th century. The Pope's political authority was reduced to Vatican City. Pius IX referred to himself as the prisoner of the Vatican. And he led the First Vatican Council to proclaim his primacy and his infallibility. John XXIII saw no need to fight anybody or anything. His encyclical, Pacem in Teres, Peace on Earth, said it all. He wanted the church to rediscover its Christian, its Christ-given identity, the servant of the gospel to all humanity. John saw the body of Christ, that is, all the baptized, called to collaborate with Jesus in the salvation of the people of God, all humanity. The 16 documents of Vatican II are divided into three categories, constitutions, decrees, and declarations. Constitutions speak to the foundational identity and character of the church. Now there are three dogmatic constitutions. Dogmatic because they see the church in its function as teacher. The Constitution on the Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. The Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. The Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum. And there is one pastoral constitution, the church in the modern world, 
the document to which we'll be introduced this evening. And the word pastoral refers to the church as minister, shepherd, caregiver. Between the calling of the council in 1959 until its solemn opening on October 11, 1962, preparatory commissions drew up many documents which would be presented to the assembled bishops for discussion and eventual promulgation. The pastoral constitution, the church in the modern world, was not one of those prepared in the preparatory commissions. Rather, it was born of a request in December of 1962, after the council had opened, made in the conciliar assembly by Cardinal Léon Joseph Suenens, who was Archbishop of Mechelen, Brussels in Belgium. Cardinal Suenens invited the bishops to spell out, quote, how the church conceived its relation to the world of today. The church had never done that before. The invitation had never been issued. The idea had never come up. The church relating to the world of today, wasn't the church eternal? Wasn't the church always going to be there? Wasn't the church transcendent above the here and now? Cardinal Sunan said, we should define ourselves in function of today's world. The progressive majority of the council agreed, as did Pope John XXIII. Three years later, the pastoral constitution, the church in the modern world, also known as Gaudium et Spes, from its opening words, would be formally accepted by the council on the very last working day, December 7, 1965. To better understand the document, let us consider two snapshots of some of what preceded it. If you look at the packets that you received coming into the church, on the first page of that packet, you see reference made to the Syllabus of Errors that was published by Pope Pius IX on the 10th anniversary of his declaration that the Immaculate Conception was a dogma of the Catholic Church. He did that on December 8, 1854. So 10 years later, December 8, 1864, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, he publishes a list of errors. These are errors, he said, that must be rejected by the Church. Now, you see, I'm not going to read everything on your text, so you're welcome to read what comes in between. But if you go down to some statements of condemnation, and the text warns you that when you read the statement, understand the Pope is rejecting this, okay? I go to the second one. In the present day, it is no longer expedient that the Catholic religion should be held as the only religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. What the Pope means is, in the present day, it is necessary that the Catholic Church be held as the only religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. So the statements as you read them are the statements, are the errors which the Pope condemns. So you have to do the, interpret it in the opposite way. I go down to the next one, two later. The church ought to be separated from the state and the state ought to be separated from the church. No, he says. The church should not be separated from the state. There should not be separation of church and state and the state should not be separated from the church. Next one. It has been wisely decided by law in some Catholic countries that persons coming to reside therein shall enjoy the public exercise of their own peculiar worship. The Pope says, no, 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 no. It has been unwisely decided by law in some Catholic countries 
that persons coming to reside therein should enjoy the public exercise of their own peculiar worship. So if you are a Protestant coming to an officially Catholic country, you may not worship there, according to the Pope's view. Okay? Lastly, the Roman pontiff can and ought to reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. The Pope said, oh no. The Roman pontiff, the Pope or the Bishop of Rome, should not reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. So you have a snapshot, one snapshot of the church prior to Vatican II, the church of Pope Pius IX. Now, some of you who are fans of church history know how real this, these views were in the life of the church, okay? If you turn the page, you come to the teaching of the Baltimore Catechism. Now, Baltimore refers to Baltimore in the state of Maryland in the United States. Originally, the first diocese, the Catholic diocese in the United States was the, was the diocese of Baltimore, Maryland. And the bishop was John Carroll. And so, as a, as a result of a plenary synod, if you will, of the church in the United States, one bishop and many priests, the decision was made to publish a catechism, a teaching tool that would be used throughout the United States. It was published, as you see, in 1885, and it was used, it was what taught me in elementary school, maybe what taught many of you. If you recall, we used to have to learn questions and answers by memory. Why did God make me? God made me to love, serve, and obey Him in this world, and be happy with Him in the next. No happiness in this world. Okay? So you have this catechism, which, con which continued until 1965. Look at, I've printed here some of the teachings of the Baltimore Catechism. Look at the first one. The members of the church on earth may be divided into those who teach and those who are taught. Those who teach, namely the pope, the bishops, and priests, are called the teaching church, or simply the church. Those who are taught, called the believing church, are simply the faithful. So those that Roman callers are the church, and you're not. Okay. Look at the next number. The duty of the faithful, remember that's you. The duty of the faithful is to learn the revealed truths taught, to receive the sacraments, and to aid in saving souls by their prayers, good works, and alms. In other words, to sum it all up, the role of the laity in the church is summed up in pay, pray, and obey. <laughs> the catechism of the Catholic Church until 1965. The next one. There can only be one true religion because a thing cannot be false and true at the same time. And therefore, all religions that contradict the teaching of the true church must teach falsehood. If all religions in which men seek to serve God are equally good and true, why did Christ disturb the Jewish religion and the apostles condemn heretics? So if you're not a Catholic, you're not a Christian. You're not going to be saved. Do you remember that? Most of us are old enough to remember that. Since the church cannot err, it cannot make a mistake, it can never be reformed in its teaching of faith or morals. Those who say the church needed reformation in faith or morals accuse our Lord of falsehood and deception. No reformation, no renewal in the Catholic church. We're perfect from the outset. We ourselves need not seek in the scriptures the Bible nor in traditions for what we are to believe, because God has appointed the church, the Roman callers, to be our guide to salvation, and we must accept its teaching as our infallible rule of faith. So that's why up until 
the years after the council, you came to church and the scriptures were read in Latin. You say, but I didn't understand them. You didn't have to. We did, and we were going to tell you what you had to know. It was as simple as that. Trust us. You can read the last one for yourself. If there are people here who belong to Reformation churches, I'm sure they'll bristle as they read number 571. If you turn the page, what I've done in the pages that are coming is printed from the Vatican website, the documents of Vatican II, sections that relate to the topics that you have at the top of the page. And the numbers that you see are not really one, two, three, four. This is the first paragraph of the document and so forth. So as you turn pages, you're going to see, wow, we're one, two, three, four, then we're up to number 42. This is going to be a quick talk. No, it's paragraph 42 in the documents. And you can get these if you don't already own a copy of the documents of Vatican II. Just go online, Google Vatican II, World Church in the Modern World, documents of Vatican II. It's accessible everywhere and it's free. So the very beginning of this document, the Church in the Modern World, as we heard in our opening prayer. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the people of this age, especially of those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the followers of Jesus Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in the hearts of the disciples of Jesus. Now, some of you had a very classical education as I did, you may have recognized in this phrase, nothing genuinely human, a statement by the Roman playwright and philosopher Terence, who lived and wrote in the middle of the second century before the birth of, of Jesus. He wrote, nothing human is alien to me. And so the council begins by saying, the hopes and aspirations, the joys, the disappointments of the whole world are those of the disciples of Christ. It is not we here and them there, it is all of us together. With joys and hopes, with disappointments and failures, we are all one. So one of the principal themes of the council is going to be humanity needs to be united. And the church wants to be an agent of that unity. The church wants to bring people together. When Pope John gave instructions to the preparatory commissions about the council, he says, these documents should not contain any condemnations, no censures, no condemnations. A document that contains that I will not sign. This is not a council of condemnation. It's a council of reconciliation. And since, so the Vatican Council begins by addressing itself not only to the members of the church and to all who invoke the name of Jesus Christ, that's all Christians, all the baptized everywhere in the world, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestants, Evangelicals, everybody, but the council addresses itself to the whole of humanity. You see that in your text at the end of the paragraph, Mark 2. To the whole of humanity. Now you might say, gee, isn't this a bit presumptuous that the church should address itself to the whole world? The church says, Christ founded this church to serve the whole world. We're not presumptuous. We come really on bended knee, not in a spirit of arrogance or triumph. Therefore, the council offers to humankind the honest assistance of the church in fostering the brotherhood and the sisterhood of all humanity. The church says we are not inspired by any ambition. The church seeks not to rule the world, but it has a, a simple goal, and that is to bring the world to Jesus Christ. And Christ entered this world to serve and not to be served. 
You're familiar with the Bible text, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. So the church must come into the world to serve and not be served. To carry out this task, write paragraph four, the church has the duty of, of reading the signs of the times, scrutinizing the signs of the times. That was a favorite phrase of Pope John XXIII. You want to know that to which God calls you, to that to which Christ calls you at this time? Read the signs of the times. And it's not referring to a newspaper. It's saying, considering the world of which you are part, consider its struggles, its success, its failures, consider its conflicts, and you will know what Christ is calling you to. Because the gospel is meant to be the living word of God in the real world, not in some fantasy world, but in the world in which you and I are living. We must therefore recognize and understand the world in which we live. We must recognize and understand the world in which we live. It's not a matter of saying, we're right and they're wrong. The politicians do that for us. We're right and they're wrong. In all the countries, it's not peculiar to our own. But the church says, no, no, our, our task is to understand the world in which we're living. You're going to see that in the document, how the church approaches with a lot of humility, but a lot of sincerity, the world in which the church finds itself. The document says, today, we find ourselves in a time of profound and rapid changes all around the world. Now remember, this is the 1960s. This is 1965. And many of us in the room were alive and adults at that time. And remember what was happening in the 1960s. In our own country, we were very much involved, as you remember, in the war in Vietnam. And we were very much a divided society about that. We had civil rights struggles in our country at that time. It was the decade of the political assassinations. It was a tough, tough time, a very difficult time. And if you were to consider the rest of the world, it wasn't less of a difficult time. In fact, I was in high school. It was, if I'm not mistaken, 1956 when Sputnik was launched. And you know what that did in terms of the world and our, our, our sense of vulnerability about that and the inauguration of the age of space exploration and space travel. The, the council says profound and rapid changes everywhere in the world. And we can only speak of a true cultural and social transformation, one which has repercussions on man's religious life as well. When the world changes, our perception of our religious faith tends to take a change as well. The council continues, never has the human race enjoyed such an abundance of wealth. Remember, this is the 1960s. An abundance of wealth, resources, and economic power. And yet so many of the world's citizens are still tormented by hunger and poverty, and many are illiterate. Many people have a keen understanding of freedom. They want freedom. However, we seem, as a human race, to be ignoring the freedoms we seek and allowing ourselves to be enslaved in new psychological slaveries of many kind. For political, social, economic, racial, ideological disputes still continue bitterly. The world of the 1960s was a conflicted world, and there's always the danger of a war that would reduce everything to ashes. Think of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came within a hair's breadth of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. We came within a hair's breadth. And some of you may know that Pope John XXIII wrote to President Kennedy and to Nikita Khrushchev, begging them to spare humanity its destruction. And then the crisis was resolved. Human beings painstakingly search for a better world, but we are not so keen about a corresponding spiritual advancement. 
We want our world to be better, our technology to be improved, but we're not sure we want our religion to advance in any way. Give me that simple old-time religion. If you'll turn the page, what the church offers to society. Remember, this is the council speaking. This is paragraph 42. You see the number there. The church recognizes that worthy elements are found in today's social movements, especially in evolution toward unity, a process of wholesome socialization and of association in civic and economic realms. There's much that is good in the world, says the council, and the promotion of unity belongs to the very nature of the church. For the force which the church can inject into modern society consists in that faith and charity put into vital practice, not on any external dominion exercised by merely human means. The church recognizes that there's a ton of good in the world, an awful lot of good. You know, those of us who are fans, are fans of history, we, we often deplore the take takeover of, of China by the communists in 1949. Who would have thought that in 50 years, China would go from a backwater nation of great poverty to the second most important economic power in the world? And so we have to say, gee, it was the government of China that caused us to come into being. There's some very good things that happened there. And the council says we have to recognize good things wherever they take place. The church is bound to no particular form of human culture, watch this carefully, nor to any political economic or social system. The church is not bound to democracy. It is not bound to capitalism. The church, by her very universality, can be a very close bond between diverse human communities and nations, provided they trust her and allow her to do what Christ commanded her to do. The Catholic church, the Christian community, is not the champion for any political system, any political party, any economic policy. We are champions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. We've all got to remember that, especially in the present time, okay? With great respect, therefore, the council regards all the true, good, and just elements inherent in the very wide variety of institutions which the human race has established for itself and constantly continues to improve. What are some of the institutions the Council is thinking of? It's thinking of the United Nations, for example. In October of 1965, Pope Paul VI came to the United States, the first Catholic Pope to do so, the first Pope to do so. And he addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations. If you want to go and Google online or whatever search engine you're using, Pope Paul VI, 1965, United Nations. Watch that video watch the entire General Assembly of the United Nations stand up and applaud as the head of the Catholic Church goes up to the rostrum to speak. And some of you remember, he spoke in French, and he pleaded for an end to war. And you remember his words, jamais plus la guerre, jamais plus la guerre, never again war, never again war. Okay? So these are the institutions that the Council is thinking of. The Council is also thinking about the European Common Market which was founded in 1957. Do you remember that? Just a few countries initially. France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany, and Italy. That was the common market. And then another group began, including England and the Scandinavian countries. And finally today, this has merged to become the European Union. These institutions, which improve life for many people, the Council recognizes and applauds. 
The church is willing to assist and promote all these institutions to the extent that such a service depends on her and can be associated with her mission. For the church is always sensitive to, the last line, the demands of the common good. That phrase appears throughout the document, the church in the modern world, the common good. We've lost sight of it. It was very popular back in the early, late 1950s and early 60s when I was in college. The common good. Now we don't speak about that anymore because we are so divided in so many different ways that we can't believe that there's anything common between us, among us. If you turn the page, changes in attitudes, morals, and religion. A change in attitudes and in human structures frequently calls accepted values into question, especially among young people who have grown impatient on more than one occasion and indeed become rebels in their distress. Do many of you remember the Democratic Party National Convention in Chicago in 1968 when so many young people protested the war in Vietnam? Do you remember that? Do you remember what a bad taste that left in the mouth of all of us when we saw the forces of order attacking the students that were there? The institutions, laws, and modes of thinking and feeling as handed down from previous generations do not always seem to be well adapted to contemporary state of affairs. Hence arises an upheaval in the manner and even the norms of behavior. Now, all of us who have been around for a few decades recognize the changes in our lives. I remember when television first came into our household and the change that made. We had always sat down at a table before the five of us, mother and dad and three kids, and we talked. Once we got our television, we had TV trays, which we carried into the parlor, and we sat down and we didn't speak because we had to listen to the television set. The world changed dramatically. Now, today, if you say to young people, we're going to ask you to do away with television for one week, they say, are you out of your mind? A whole week without television? We did it back then. Yeah, that's why you're so old. <laughs> now, the next paragraph, more on the, on, in matters of religion, a more, there needs to be a more critical ability to distinguish religion from a magical view of the world. And that has been happening since then. A critical ability to distinguish religion from a magical view of the world and from the superstitions which still circulate. And there's still a lot of magic in most religions and a lot of superstition. And that doesn't help any of us. It doesn't help any of us. The council is going to continue talking about that. We need a more personal and explicit adherence to faith. So it's not because I'm French and France always thought itself as Catholic that I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. The council says I should be a Catholic because I've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and to the religious tradition in which I was baptized, Christianity. Many persons are achieving a more vivid sense of God and growing numbers, however, of people are at the same time abandoning religion in practice, the practice of religion. So the church says in this changing times, we've seen people getting a better sense of what religion is and moving away from magic and superstition. We're also seeing people leaving the church in droves. Now in the 1950s, I belonged to a parish in Lumminster, Massachusetts. The church building was the largest church in the Diocese of Worcester. And every Sunday we had Mass at 6.30, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11.30, and every Sunday you better get there early or you wouldn't find a seat. And the church seated 1,100. This seats 1,400. 
church seat 1100. The church was packed. And there was always people standing against the wall in the back row. That changed in this time of the of 1960s. The church is, look at the next 43, the church is very well, very well aware that among her members, both clerical and lay, both ordained and not ordained, some have been unfaithful to the Spirit of God during the course of many centuries. In the present age, too, it does not escape the church how great a distance lies between the message she offers and the human failings of those to whom the gospel is entrusted. Whatever the judgment of history on these defects, we ought to be conscious of them, struggle against them energetically, lest they inflict harm on the spreading of the gospel. If that had been heeded, if these words had been taken to heart by everybody, we'd have not had the terrible scandal that has attracted such very, very dis great distrust on our church, the clergy sexual abuse stand scandal. Remember, this is 1965. The clergy sexual abuse scandal exploded in Massachusetts in 2002 by a series of articles from the Boston Globe that served us well. And now look what continues as we continue learning about this terrible abuse. The dignity of the moral conscience. This is an especially important page. In the depths of our conscience, human beings detect a law which we do not impose upon ourselves, but which hold us to obedience. Always summoning us to love good and avoid evil, the voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to our heart. Do this, avoid that. For we have in our heart a law written by God. This is really powerful stuff. To obey that law is the very dignity of every human being. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of every human being. There we are alone with God, whose voice echoes in our depths. In a wonderful manner, conscience reveals that law which was fulfilled by love of God and neighbor. In fidelity to conscience, Christians are joined with the rest of people in the search for truth. All human beings are blessed by the Creator with a conscience. All human beings are blessed by the Creator with a conscience. Okay? And that conscience is something sacred and very, very important within us. God's voice resides there. If you don't go to the bottom, page 41, the council has a sacred reverence for the dignity of the conscience and its freedom of choice. Now, some of you will say, well, Father Andre, isn't it true? Didn't I hear somewhere along the line that a conscience has to be formed? The answer is yes. How does one form one's conscience? If you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, published under Pope John Paul II, there's a whole section on the formation of conscience. And here's what it says. Some of you have heard me say this before. The first tool for forming your conscience is the Bible. Let the Bible be the first tool for forming your conscience. And thus, in our churches, since the council, we read, we hear the scriptures in a language we understand, and we read far more of the Bible today than we did before the council. At every weekend masses, there are at least three readings from scripture in addition to the psalm. Before the council, there were two readings, the epistle and the gospel. Remember that, John? Just two. We've expanded it dramatically. So use the scriptures to form your conscience. Second tool, says the catechism, observe what works in the lives of the people you know. Learn from others what works and what fails, how they are helped to be better people. And thirdly, listen to the teaching of the bishops. That's what the catechism says. So it's putting scripture first, 
It's putting experience, especially those of others around us, to help us understand, and then the teaching of the bishop. The church and those who deny the existence of God. This is the section to which I've given the most space, two pages. And the reason for that is the following. Many adults, both back in my parish in Massachusetts and here, often say, you know, Father Andre, I'm so sad. My kids don't come to church anymore. I don't think my kids want to be Catholics anymore. You know, the, the, the young people don't, don't, just don't seem to believe anymore. And the council back in 1965, look at what it said about unbelief. Atheism must be encountered among the most serious problems of this age. And we want to look at it carefully. The word atheism is applied to phenomena quite distinct from one another. For while God is expressly denied by some, others say that we can say nothing absolutely certain about God to begin with. For some, the word God, the idea of God, is devoid of meaning. Some contend that everything can be explained by this kind of scientific reasoning. You recall that when Yuri Gagarin, the Soviet cosmonaut, the first human being to circle the earth in a capsule, when he came back to earth successfully, Nikita Khrushchev said, oh, while Yuri was circling the earth, he looked for God and didn't see him. Technology had replaced God for those people. Some people praise human beings so extravagantly that their faith in God lapses into a kind of anemia. Humans are great. There's no need for us to talk about God. We're good enough. Some form for themselves such a false idea of God that when they repudiate this figment, they are by no means rejecting the God of the gospel. You have people who say, you know, my notion of God is, and we say, that's not the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Going down a few lines, atheism, atheism results not rarely from a violent protest against the evil in the world. If God can allow something as terrible as such and such a tragedy, there can be no God, evil in the world or from the absolute character with which certain human values are unduly invested. Modern civilization itself often complicates the approach to God, not for any essential reason, but because we are heavily engrossed in earthly affairs. We are also very, very busy. Even those of us who claim to be retired, we remain very, very busy. And so in the busyness of it all, I don't have time to come to church. I don't have time to pray. I don't have the time to, there's just so much to do. Next paragraph, people who deny the existence of God are not free from blame. Yet, here's really important, believers themselves, people who believe in God, frequently bear some responsibility for the situation. For taken as a whole, atheism is not a spontaneous development, but stems from a variety of causes, including critical reaction against religious beliefs, and in some places against the Christian religion in particular. Some people say there's no God because they look at us and they say, if that's the expression of God, I reject it. Any of you ever hear of the Crusades? And we wonder why Muslims don't trust us? Any of you ever hear of the Inquisition? Have any of you had an experience of the church when the hierarchy and others may perhaps behave in a way that we consider unfair or is generally considered unfair? Go back to the clergy sexual abuse crisis. Okay. Believers can have more than a little to do with the birth of atheism to the extent that we believers neglect our own training in the faith or teach false doctrine or are deficient in our religious, moral, or social life. We must be said to conceal rather than reveal the authentic face of God 
in the authentic face of religion. Many people deny God because they see us, and they say, if that's what it means to be a believer, I want nothing to do with it. Modern, modern atheism stretches the desires for human independence and says, if you believe in God, you're not believing in human beings, and you're denying our possibilities of development. Next page. By its nature, religion thwarts the liberation of man by arousing man's hope for a deceptive future. So if we're all going to end up in heaven someday, there's no need to work hard to make this world better, right? Untrue. We claim that we are committed to improving the world for everybody. The church strives to detect in the atheistic mind the hidden causes for the denial of God. The conscious of how weighty are the questions which atheism raises and motivated by love for all people, the church believes these questions ought to be examined seriously and more profoundly. Go to the second to the last paragraph. The remedy which must be applied to atheism is to be sought in a proper presentation of the church's teaching as well as in the integral life of the church and her members. Our faith needs to prove its fruitfulness by penetrating the believer's entire life including its worldly dimensions, and by activating us toward justice and love, especially regarding the needy. While rejecting atheism, the church sincerely professes that all persons, believers and unbelievers alike, ought to work for the rightful betterment of the world in which we all live. Such an ideal cannot be realized apart from sincere and prudent dialogue. Whether we are believers or unbelievers, we are all committed to making this world a better place. The church and the political community. This page I worked on pretty intensely, as you'll see. In Gaudium et Spes, reference is made to the very noble art of politics, paragraph 75. The church praises and esteems the work of those who, for the good of people, devote themselves to the service of the state and take on the burdens of this office. People who are candidates for public office, we should honor them. Because, as you know, most people don't want to do it. They don't want to get involved in the, the pain and the, the complexity of it all. The council acknowledges that Christians must recognize the legitimacy of different opinions with regard to temporal solutions, secular solutions, and material solutions, and respect citizens who, even as a group, defend their points of view by honest methods. The fact that we have disagreements in our country among a great many, on a great many topics doesn't mean that any of us should conclude we're right and they're wrong, we're good and they're bad. Okay? And when a bishop of the Catholic Church in the United States says the President of the United States is another Hitler and Stalin, he is violating what this teaching is right here. Okay? Some of you know of what I speak. We can't get into that. We must respect the, legi the legitimacy of different opinions. Fourteen times in this document, the common good is held up as an essential value and a goal to be pursued by politicians. The political community exists for the sake of the common good, in which it finds its full justification and significance and the source of its inherent legitimacy. Government exists for the purpose of serving the common good. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people, recognizing the phrase of Abraham Lincoln. When government does not serve the common good, government is not legitimate. Political systems are in error when they divert the exercise of authority from the service of the common good to the interests of one or another faction, political party, or the interests of the rulers themselves. 
The common good embraces the sum total of all those conditions of social life which enable individuals, families, and organizations to achieve complete and efficacious fulfillment. Gaudium et Spes stresses both the rights and the duties of all and include the right freely to meet and to form associations, the right to express one's own opinion and to profess one's religion both publicly and privately. How many times in our country have we heard in the last few years, I don't care if the Muslims build a church, a mosque, but not in our neighborhood, not in our city. We don't want Muslims in our community. Look what the text says. These rights include the right to express one's opinion and to profess one's religion both publicly and privately. The document affirms the rights of minorities, but notice the last line of that paragraph, it also mentions the duties of the minorities toward the political community. Sometimes we say, gee, there are these groups, they think they have all the rights and they have no duties. Rights and duties go together. The church, by reason of her role and competence, is not identified in any way with the political community nor bound to any political system. That's so important to recognize. The Catholic Church is not allied to any political party in any country. So you hear in some, in some European countries, the Christian, social, the Christian Democrats or the Christian Social Democrats, the church is not with them. The choice of a political regime and the appointment of rulers are left to the free will of citizens. When you go into the voting booth, you vote your conscience. When you vote in the upcoming elections, we hope that you will all vote, you vote your conscience. There is no Catholic candidate. There is no non-Catholic candidate. Hear what the council says. This is really remarkable. At all times and all places, the church should have true freedom to preach the faith, to teach her social doctrine, and to exercise her role freely among people, and also to pass moral judgment in those matters which regard public order, when the fundamental rights of a person or the salvation of souls require it. Watch this. In this, the church should make use of all the means, but only those means which accord with the gospel. If the church is going to enter into the political discussion, any political discussion, the church should only means, use the means afforded by the gospel. That's so important, and it's not being done everywhere. Okay? Please look at that. It's really so important. The next page. Respect and love ought to be extended also to those who think or act differently than we do in social, political, or even religious matters. Do you see the council trying to bring people together? You know, um, under Pope Pius XII, who died in 1958, Pius XII knew that there was a very big communist party in Italy. The Italian Communist Party was the largest communist party uh, outside of that of the Soviet Union. And Pius XII at one point said, any Catholic in Italy who votes for a communist candidate is excommunicated. Pope John XXIII succeeded Pius XII and invited Alexei Adjubey to visit the Vatican. Alexei Adjubey was a son-in-law of Nikita Khrushchev and the editor of Isvestia. How things change. And it was Alexei Adjubey who asked Pope John XXIII, Sir, how many people work in the Vatican? And John answered, about half. We ought to respect and love people who are different than we are in social, political, and even religious matters. Even religious matters, okay? In fact, the more deeply we come to understand their ways of thinking, the more easily we can dialogue with them. We haven't been doing that. This love and goodwill must in no way render us indifferent to truth and goodness, 
but it is necessary to distinguish between error and the person in error who never loses the dignity of being a human being. God alone, watch this sentence, it's very powerful. God alone is the judge and the searcher of hearts, and for that reason God forbids us to make judgments about the internal guilt of anyone. George, God alone knows how to read our hearts and judge our goodness or our culpability and forbids us to pass judgment on others. Don't point out the sliver in your brother's eye when you have a post sticking out of your head. <laughs> Number 29, since all people possess a rational soul and are created in God's likeness, everybody without exception, since they have the same nature and origin and have been redeemed by Jesus and enjoy the same divine calling and destiny, the basic equality of all human beings must receive increasingly greater recognition. The basic fundamental equality of all human beings. With respect to the fundamental rights of the person, every type of discrimination, every type of discrimination, whether social or cultural, whether based on gender, race, color, social condition, language, or religion, is to be overcome and eradicated as contrary to God's intent. Now, the enumeration here does not include sexual orientation, because that really wasn't on the radar until 1969 with the riots in New York City. But it says every type of discrimination is to be avoided, every type. We affirm the equal dignity of persons and that demands a more humane and just condition of life be brought about for everybody. Please turn the page. The need to transcend an individualistic morality. It grows increasingly true that the obligations of justice and love are fulfilled only if each person contributing to the common good, according to his or her own abilities and the needs of others, promotes and assists the public and private institutions dedicated to bettering the conditions of human life. As a Christian, it's not just about me. You know, they used to say, I take care of number one, the heck with everybody else. That is not what the council says. We have, each one of us as individuals, a responsibility for the whole. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm my whole family's keeper. The common good has to be very important to us all. Many in various places even make light of social laws and precepts and do not hesitate to resort to various frauds and deceptions in avoiding just taxes or other debts due to society. I've always been surprised when I see an ad on television that says, do you owe over such amount to the IRS? Give us a call. We'll get your taxes, get your payment reduced to very, very little compared to what you owe. I'm not sure how that can be done. Others think little of certain social norms or certain norms of social life. For example, those designed for the protection of health or laws establishing speed limits. The council talks about the need to respect speed limits. Now, driving for me here in Scottsdale is a lot easier and a lot less dangerous than it was in Massachusetts. If any of you have ever visited Boston, Massachusetts, you know what it can mean to take your life in your own hands. But even here in Scottsdale, we have fantastic roads and by and large, very polite people. Just last week, coming back to the church after lunch, I was on Cactus Road going west, and I took the ramp to get onto 101 South to come onto Shea. And as I was going down that ramp, there's another ramp coming from uh, the Cactus Road also, and there was a Mercedes coming that way, and I could see the car on the side of my eye, and that car had two signs on that ramp that said, yield. And that car didn't yield and came within inches of my little Saturn and missed me. And I was really rattled. And I kept going down the ramp and I looked in my rearview mirror and there's a pickup truck speeding 
and he's going to try to pass me. And as you know, the two lanes become one as you come to 101. I said, God, this is my day to die. I stepped on, I stepped on the accelerator and quickly got into 101. The council says, be respectful of laws and speed limits and signs that say yield. Yield does not mean accelerate. <laughs> Let everyone consider that the estimation and observation of social necessities, necessities, right, belong to the primary duties of modern man. Turn the page, please. The roles and responsibilities of laypersons and clergy in today's world. Secular duties and activities belong properly, though not exclusively, to lay people. Secular duties, that means not primarily religious duties, but secular duties, how the world functions. And remember, in the Catholic Church, you lay people are 99%, and we clergy are currently less than 1%. Okay? So you are the Catholic Church in the world. Acting as citizens in the world, lay people labor to equip themselves with a genuine expertise in their various fields. They will gladly work with people seeking the same goals. You don't ask someone who's, who wants to work with you what their opinions may be on certain very sensitive matters like religion or politics. Acknowledging the demands of faith and endowed with its force, lay people devise new enterprises. They put them into action. They use their well-formed Christian conscience to see that the divine law is inserted into our earthly city. From priest, if you see this, I'm looking at the text, from priest, lay people may look for spiritual light and nourishment. Let the lay person not imagine that his or her pastors are always such experts that to every problem which arises, however complicated, the clergy can readily give him a concrete solution or even that such is their mission. You know, if you're dealing with a real material problem, don't come and ask Father. I've known, and you have too, many priests who think, thought they had an answer for everything because they were ordained. Okay? The council said, be very careful. Priests are not expert in everything. Quite the contrary. Okay? Let the layperson take on his own distinctive role. All bishops and priests should remember that by their daily conduct and concern, they are revealing the face of the church to the world and people will judge the power and truth of the Christian message thereby. By unremitting study, bishops and priests are urged by the council to study. To study, and that means more than just looking at the PBS channel on television, okay? By unremitting study, they should fit themselves to their part in establishing dialogue with the world and with people of all shades of opinion. This is addressed to the clergy from the council, you know? After ordination, you know, there's no continuing education programs for us. Unless a priest decides to continue study to read and so forth, there's no, I, there's no credits that you get every year if you go to a workshop or something. You know, we're on our own in that regard. The church is well aware that among her members, both clergy and lay people, some have been unfaithful to the Spirit of God during the course of many centuries. In the present age, too, it does not escape the church how great a distance lies between the message she offers and the human failings of those to whom the gospel is entrusted. Whatever be the judgment of history on these defects, we ought to be conscious of them and struggle against them energetically, lest they inflict harm on the spreading of the gospel. How often did we hear when the clergy sexual abuse crisis became public, we heard bishops saying, 
We didn't do, any, didn't do anything to confuse and scandal people. We, we, we wanted to take decisions to protect the church. I read the same thing within the last week about the Boy Scouts of America. Yes, we had these files, but we didn't want to say anything because we didn't want the reputation of the Boy Scouts to be, to be overshadowed. Here's what the, see what the council says? It's very, very different if you turn the page. So what we have, the second part of the council document is these urgent problems. I'm really not going to get into them that much. Um, I'd like you to, to, to read them. Now, tonight I, I really urge you to take some time to read a council document. You have access to all of them online. Take some time to read a council document. I know there are parishes throughout the world which are saying, we're going to host a special mass next weekend to honor the celebration of the opening of the council. First of all, there's no such thing as a special mass. All masses are special, equally special, okay? But if you want to do something to celebrate the Second Vatican Council, read a document. Read a document. On the 4th of July, instead of barbecues and fireworks, we should read the Declaration of Independence. I wonder how many Americans have read the Declaration of Independence. I wonder. And wouldn't that be more important celebrating the 4th of July than playing with fireworks, which are illegal to use here anyway? You can buy them, but you can't use them, right? <laughs> the council, in the second part, says there are some really urgent problems that need to be addressed. First of all, the marriage and the family. And there, I don't, you don't need to be convinced that there are some real problems here. When we know that 50% of marriages end in divorce, there's, some, there's a real problem there. When you read, perhaps a few months ago, as I did in the Arizona Republic, that a recent study says that of all the couples living together in the United States right now, all the couples living together, 52% of them are not married, 48% of them are married. Okay? Most couples living together are not legally married. Why is that? Many of you could ask your children, how come you're just living together? And they'll say, frankly, I don't think marriage is possible. I don't think a lifelong commitment is possible. And you say, well, why don't you think that? Well, I say, you know, most couples get divorced. And frankly, mom and dad, it hasn't always been very pretty to watch you. So people are thinking that, you know, what we can do if we like one, let's move in together, let's share an apartment, let's have a good time. And should the day come when we don't enjoy each other anymore, no hard feelings, goodbye, good luck, you know, and we move on. That's life, right? The church says we have a real problem there and we have to address it. We have to address it. And it is not enough to be against gay marriage to think that we're addressing the real issue of marriage. Okay? The rate of divorce in our country and the rate of cohabitation without legal marriage is a far greater threat to the institution of marriage than is the, the people who are asking for gay marriage. Proper development of culture. Culture is very important. And I'm just going to use a couple of examples that I wrote down here to illustrate what I think the council means. It used to be families used to share meals at the same table at the same time. That's very rare today. Multiple generations live together under one roof. Grandparents, parents, and children. Not anymore. So rare. We used to have conversations about one's day, not about the TV programs. We actually said, what, what was your day like? I want to watch the TV program. Did you watch the debate last night? That's not what I want to talk about. We used to have neighbors acknowledged and cared about. 
Do we have neighbors anymore? We don't know what those folks are like. We've got to watch out. Never can tell. Now in our time, there is this immense, and this is different from the 50s and 60s, okay? The immense popularity of competitive sports, the business of sports, the scandals we've had in our own state here in the last year with the Fiesta Bowl, okay? You, 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 this is, no, this wasn't the case when I was a kid. Kids competitive sports today. When I was a kid, we had a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. There was a, a, a vacant lot next door to where I lived. We just got together there. We brought our gloves and balls and bats, and we played for a while. And when the parents called us home, we went home. Nowadays, it's big business, kids' sports. Two or more income families. My mom raised us. Nowadays, you say, gee, life is so expensive, and there are so many things that we want that we really require that at least we have at least two incomes. Very different. That's a change in culture. Children's daycare. There's a new facility that recently opened on Scottsdale Road. You probably get a flyer about it. It looks to me like what it costs to go to Assumption College. <laughs> the buildings are certainly more attractive than buildings I taught in Worcester. Today we have multiple cars and multiple TVs. You hear about this all the time. What do you, what do you, I watch my program and he watched his program and the kids watch their program. The culture has changed and that's not necessarily for the better. Economic and social life. Economics are important. They really are. And we know that, all of us. And we have to learn from the mistakes that were made in the last decade or so so that we don't get caught up in that again. But we don't want to be possessed by an economic mentality that thinks that money is all that's really valuable. That money is a solution to everything. And if we have a lot of money, we're going to be happy. And if we don't have money, we're going to be unhappy. That's not true. In our cultures, we find people with immense amounts of wealth we also have a lot of people that are incredibly poor. The tens of millions of very poor people in our society. The political community. The political community is, is essential. It's really important that we have it. But the political community has got to be oriented towards an inward sense of justice, of goodwill, and of service of the common good. Fostering peace and establishment of a community of nations. Pope Paul VI said, we have to devote ourselves to real peace with renewed vigor. And that's something that really is just as important in our time as it has been in any other time. Peace, it's very, very important, and yet it seems to, it seems to elude us so often. Right now, the debate, of course, is what about Iran? Do we do a preemptive attack? Or do we continue negotiating? Do we wait, or do we move now? What's true? They claim they're not building the bomb. What are they doing? And yet if we wait, and if they have the bomb, what's going to happen? Peace seems so much, so distant from us too often.